Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm in India. And we are your theory doctors. Hi there. Welcome back. Hope you've been well. How have you been, Hannah? I've been all right. The weather in Edinburgh has been horrific. It's not too bad today. I was expecting worse today. Yeah. It's just yeah. windy, but we, we have been hit by Storm Dennis. Storm Dennis. In the UK. Dennis the Menace. It was Storm Kiara last week. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, California, it's like 80 degrees and sunny. What's that in centigrade and real? In royal. Yes. Uh, Something probably like 30 degrees, something like that. Nice. Nice. Better than here. Yeah. Um, We've become so British, we're talking about the weather. Uh, But today's podcast isn't about the weather, is it? No, it's not. What are we talking about today? We're we're talking about, I I think it's not going to surprise anyone, we're talking about coronavirus. Yeah. World's media continues to give us fodder to talk, talk about. Yep. And long may it last. Long may it last. Um, so we are recording this on the 16th of February. Uh, and as of this moment, where are we in terms of actual news to do with the coronavirus outbreak? Well, so it's um, there's there's a couple of different wings, I think, in terms of media reporting. There's different arms. One is the geopolitics angle, the the reporting on the Chinese government, and it's the various kind of accusations of what cover up or negligence or whatever, whatever. Then there's the the public health type stuff, which is I think more common and more of what we're going to talk about today. Um, although they're related, and that is essentially about how number um, the kind of updated number of people who've died, the number of people who are sick, where the sick people are located. Um, you know, as soon as there's one person in a hospital in Britain, everything changes, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so yesterday I think it was the first announced death in Europe. Yeah. Uh, and that was a big thing in the British media. Um, it was a big deal as well because it, it was a tourist, was a tourist who was yes. visiting. Yes. And um, there was a sharp shift, sharp uptick in the number of cases uh, last week because they changed the way in which they count uh, confirmed cases. Yes. And then since then, I think today was the first time in the news where there's, they've announced a, a, a statistically significant downturn number of cases yeah so it's, i mean it's far too early to comment yet on on the trajectory of the of the uh infection the as a whole the yeah. spread as a whole uh not that we are necessarily qualified to do that anyway um and whatever we say today has to be born in the context of you know we recognize that many of our listeners are scared and in many cases the fear is genuine um some of our listeners might be immunocompromised, in which case they're wor- more worried than than otherwise about catching an infection. Mm-hmm. Uh, depending on who you are, where you are, um, the the fears may be may be completely genuine. And even if they're not, objectively speaking, I'm using scare quotes, genuine, they're at least understandable. And part of the the way the media has reported uh, the the story as a whole has been designed to. Uh, to inflate fears. Yeah. Uh, so nothing about what we are saying today is meant to um, undermine or ridicule the real fears that people may have. Yeah. That, that's not what we're trying to do. And also the reality of infection. Yeah. You know, we we are always at risk to varying degrees to right. 
illness. And as we've said before, we like scientists, we like doctors. Yep. Um, Get your flu shot if you're yes. eligible for yeah. one. Uh we we are not we are not challenging the the basis on which scientific opinion is produced. No. Uh what we are interested in is the way in which the media has taken this story and produced it or reproduced it in a way that reinforces certain racial traditions or traditions of racial representation and racial thought uh uh going back a long long way. Yes. Um what has been the kind of racial undertones that you've noticed in the way you've consumed the story? Yeah, well I mean uh, more kind of liberal leaning news organizations and kind of online magazines have identified this already. So this is the kind of baseline which is um there's a real troubling undertone about China uh China as a as a kind of exotic foreign place that can't be fully understood and if it can't be fully understood it can't be fully managed and Chinese people as the embodiment of that fear and Chinese people as all potential vessels for something that will kill us i'm using scare quotes and the i mean it, it, there's you know a lot of kind of straight up chinese races uh, racism against chinese people or people who white people think are chinese because white people are notoriously bad <laughs> at accurately identifying ethnic and racial identities for most yes. people so so someone who physically looks different and is therefore seen as not belonging can therefore be seen as carrying this threat yeah uh in in quote unquote normal times the threat is uh more clearly metaphorical it's you know taking uh taking over our way of life or you know abducting and raping our women or you know the wonderful ways in which racism patriarchy capitalism sort of align with each other when there are particular moments of contagion and and epidemic then the threat gets materialized in the form of that contagion right yes. so the the coronavirus pathogen becomes the yardstick of anxieties surrounding other people coming in because they're not just bringing themselves they're also bringing these diseases yes and the so the the some kind of more progressive uh commentators have already said this aspect of it what i think we're going to try and do is historicize it um provide a bit more historical context for it and i think also to unpack that gray area that still exists in the media which is that okay so there's there's the racism bit but there is actually a virus and the media hasn't been able to link them up in a way that I think makes critical sense but that also can alleviate all of our fears of every person that we encounter in the world and we can genuinely say the virus is something completely different from how what the media is presenting it as cuz so, a lot of racism yeah. manifests so there's you know there's the, the people who are kind of who's still embarrassed to 
still embarrassed by certain things that they might think automatically or are always kind of thinking, um, oh, was that, was that thought problematic? Maybe, you know, I, I should explore that. Often with something like contagion, there's a subset of, of white people in particular who, who allow the contagion to justify some of that latent racism. It, it legitimizes racism, yeah. doesn't it? it? It sort of, it provides the, the confirmation that, that I was right all along. You know, whether or not it is taught in those terms, in, explicitly in those terms, the, the presence of, of infection uh, justifies the fear because you can turn around and say, look, I was right all along. Yeah. There, is a, there is a reason to do this. And you see this all the time uh, in terms of fears surrounding traveling in exotic places right like the 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 industry of travel vaccinations where you know if i if i'm going to india i need to take these this 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 profile access if i'm going to sub-saharan africa i need to take a, a different lot and the the fact that these diseases only exist in these spaces uh then provides the scientific objective legitimizing factor that says these places are dangerous because mm-hmm. you know if you happen if you go to india you might get malaria if you stay in britain you will chances are not get malaria uh and that quote unquote fact means that it is much easier to portray india as the dangerous place as opposed to britain yeah and the danger is and this is where science is really powerful the danger is rooted in scientific discourse so there's a there's a a beginning point around science and germ theory and medicalization of of illness and the the kind of massive understanding that scientists and doctors have about how malaria works or how the flu works and they do have a decent amount of understanding in terms of what what it does in your body and how a drug might mitigate the side effects or might prevent it or something like that that's the science bit, but what's really tricky and where science become where the social socially constructed aspects of science become really important, the fact that it's embedded in in, you know, post colonial discourses and, you know, a carryover from colonial legacies and colonial discourse, which is very political and racialized, that that science then takes on a socially constructed flavor that uses the science as a cover, essentially, for racist ideology or for um, mechanisms for politically and socially othering particular places. So yeah, a mosquito might carry malaria, might be more likely to carry malaria in a certain place, but the entire industry around why that is the case and what happens is entirely politically and economically constituted. So, but science doesn't, doesn't really care much for that language and doesn't operate in those terms anyway. Science does what it does and it is powerful in developing drugs and identifying causes because it it has this method of hypothesis testing, which isn't particularly concerned with politics. That's fine. I'm happy to have my antibiotics, <laughs> you know, delivered to me by doctors who are knowledgeable in this stuff. But it's really, for us, the most important thing on our side given what we do and what our jobs are, is to think about that political realm. And this is so old. That, and I think the fear of China in Europe goes beyond, it, it predates the period of colonialism that we talk about 
for the most part on this podcast. Yeah. Do, do you want to say a bit more about about how what forms it takes and how it how it works? Yeah. The fear of China. The fear. So it's really interesting because it, it predates medical science in the way that we kind of understand it as well. So so when germ theory comes along, <laughs> and when um, medicalization of nutrition and food comes along, this fear of China and other parts of Asia f- kind of take on a new a new discursive flavor, but it's just mutated. It's not, it's not particularly different. And there's a part of it early on, of course, is religious. Um, There's a, a kind of Christian basis to it, a fear of um, kind of non-Christian civilizations. And part, well, partly as well, I mean, I don't know that much about the, the, really early um the really early history kind of middle ages but europe was trading with asia before europe and asia were really kind of take on the geopolitical significance that they have now so it's a really old trading relationship compared to europe's relationship with what comes to be called north america for example europeans didn't know that that existed that there was a whole set of civilizations and um kingdoms basically existing in another part of the world that they didn't even know about. They knew about the place that's now called China. They knew about the place that's now called India as well. So they, there's a, a, a very old trading relationship along the Silk Road. So in terms of proximity, there's a much older, longer history that isn't colonial in the way that we now think of it. But it is a source of anxiety. Yes. Right? So... You think uh, about the plague. If you think about the plague in a slightly different period, if you think about opium, yep. the, the idea that the the ob- material objects we are getting from these other countries, in this instance, principally China, we are getting benefits from from this trade, which will eventually become a, a more familiar colonial relationship, more familiar to us, that is. Uh, but... Throughout it all, the 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 fear is along with all the uh, material benefits we are getting in terms of silk or spices or, or well, and or, early on it was luxury opium, goods, luxury goods. Pre tea, it yeah. was like ceramics yeah. and silks and yes. stuff. What do we? What are? What is coming in along with it? You know, what is being sort of smuggled along with these uh, these more desirable things and. So much of the the fear is has has been to do with health from a very early age. You mentioned the plague, you know the the the, the notion of China flooding Europe with opium mm-hmm. in order to emasculate the European population. Yep. If you look at um, look at the Sherlock Holmes stories, for example, or of of Victorian crime fiction more generally, it is full of the 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 European man who has his masculinity and his nobility irredeemably compromised because he has become addicted to opium. Yep. And as he gets addicted to opium, he becomes yellower, like physically, visually, he becomes paler and yellower, and therefore he becomes more and more compromised and less and less European. Yeah. Um, And there is, it seems to us, a, a... tradition which has you know plague at one end of it 
and SARS and, and now the coronavirus at the other end of it, uh, which continues this tradition of uh, being afraid of the kinds of things that might come from these far-flung parts of the world and, and then compromise our health. Yes. There's a link, a very close link to animals. Um, bird flu and swine flu as well. I mean, SARS and coronavirus are compared because they're more similar in terms of the the virus, I think. I'm not an expert in this, but I think because the virus is more similar and it has it's a respiratory illness. That's why they're being compared. But between SARS and uh, coronavirus, C-virus, there's been swine flu and bird flu, avian flu. And the... The link to animals is really important as well because there's, it's, it's, a, it's quite an abject linking up in, in the mind between nutrition, the human body, the relationship to animals in terms of proximity to, to living animals, and then that period in which animals are slaughtered for food and then are consumed. And it is, there's lots of different ways of thinking about it, but when it comes to something like coronavirus or swine flu, there is a tapping into of a particular colonial trope that characterizes the East as having impure relationships with animals. They're not sexualized anymore. They have been in the past at various points and in various places, but there is a a real activating of disgust and distaste around food practices and the food industry and labeling, you know, a lot of the disease, the kind of so-called illnesses as, you know, being attached to the, the animals that they come from. There's a real powerful narrative and ideology that also, you know, goes back to other other diseases as well, like AIDS, for example. Um, um, yes, absolutely. Before we go any further, do you want to gloss the word abject a little bit, just yeah. in case some of our listeners haven't come across? I, I don't think we've spoken much about abject. Abjection, yeah. Um, Abjection is a, it comes from from kind of Freudian psychoanalytical theory, and it's a it's a it's a slippery word to describe because Freud was the master of coining terms to describe stuff that's difficult to describe and abjection is a it's kind of a combination of disgust and revulsion but that you can't really explain why so it's often applied to stuff where you it's not really that gross it's not like an obviously disgusting or scary thing but it it kind of very subtly inspires a feeling of um um, like discomfort, physiological discomfort that, and Freud says this is key, that reminds you of death. It reminds you of your mortality. And so one of the things, he uses different examples and other kind of psychoanalytical theorists have used different examples. Who is it that talks about the the skin that forms on milk? If you're heating up milk, the skin forms on top. Some people find that abject. I don't really, but some people do. The one that that always gets me is used coffee grounds. If I touch used coffee grounds, I it, it's like a shiver. It's a physiological shiver, but it's it goes deeper, and that is abjection. Yeah, the 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 version of abjection I'm, I guess I'm most familiar with is the French theorist Julia Kristeva. Yeah, and Kristeva talks about abjection as 
the the thing that we expel from our body and therefore reminds us of the gap between us and the world and uh and therefore the the sense of mortality yeah right so things like vomit things like blood when a finger is attached to us in the way that it should be it's not horrific but if a finger gets chopped off the finger on its own becomes a becomes a a, a mark of horror yeah uh and there is a way in which like a lot of freudian theory you can apply it culturally so so you know the 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 pathogen or the animal that shouldn't be eaten according to i'm using scare quotes throughout all of this according to european conventions eating of those animals becomes something abject yeah right it it becomes becomes a, a cultural point of disgust for europe yeah and it puts uh, you at risk of death yes Be- and and it reminds you of your mortality and yeah. and and you know one doesn't have to do too much clever theory work to to think about how this might um make space for anxieties to do with rebellion in colonial periods right mm-hmm. like the 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 notion that this thing which the the native does which disgusts me reminds me of the native power to overthrow me if they want to yeah um so th- there is there is a whole whole sort of Venn diagram type connections or, or chain link type connections between food, nutrition, taste, sexual appetite, desire, infection, hygiene and spatial control and sovereignty. Yeah. All of these things are in 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 various extents and to various degrees connected. Yes, they are. Um I wanted to think a little bit more about hygiene practices specifically because as is the case with any infection hygiene practices have a material effect in terms of go on in terms of uh deciding the fate of the of the epidemic having yes. said that i guess i'm particularly interested in the the ways in which particular hygiene practices are marked as as clean or dirty based on cultural factors right so yes so one of the one of the clichés of the the way in which the european non-european encounter in various periods gets marked by the non-european is white people are dirty because they have baths as opposed to showers <laughs> right because you're yep. sitting in your dirt in the water <laughs> um yeah yeah uh in the way white people think the idea of cleaning yourself after you've gone to the toilet with your hand as disgusting yeah uh non-white people depending on where you are will will often think the idea of rubbing yourself with toilet paper is disgusting right how does that clean you yeah it water only gets is, half of it off yeah water is the thing that's supposed to clean you <laughs> um and none of these sentiments on on either side are anything to do with the objectivity of cleanliness yeah they are to do with what kind of uh hygiene practices are you familiar with and therefore comfortable with 
and what kind kind of hygiene practices fill you with disgust you know the idea of touching yourself after you've gone to the loo where the mess ends up on your hands becomes abject yeah uh as opposed to you know using a toilet paper or whatever yeah um how does that these these notions of difference in terms of hygiene practices map onto the kinds of hierarchies we've been talking about yeah well it once they get fitted into a a kind of bigger framework of power and once there's a geopolit- a geopolitical relationship at play where a, you know a, an entire group of people is being politically subjugated by a small elite group from another place you then have the the interweaving of these types of ideologies into the bigger picture the british government um certainly in the kind of 19th century once the once the government takes over from the east india company becomes really interested in regulating hygiene regulating behavior of it kind of related to hygiene for moral reasons and also as a way of civilizing i'm using scare quotes obviously civilizing the indian populations that they were exploiting um so the it fits into a wider hierarchy or a kind of a wider framework in which hierarchies are established and maintained. And it's tied, I think, especially in the the British context, but probably most of them, it's tied very closely to Christian missions. There's something really interesting that happens on the, the missionary side of colonialism, which we don't talk about quite as much because we're less in, we spend less of our time doing research specifically about the missions and about the Christian church's role in colonialism, but it's really active. And where the the missions really come into play is in educating, so-called educating, and then enforcing certain types of hygiene practices in order to educate the masses. And what's really interesting when we talk about abjection is one of the, one of the narratives around being a missionary is that you you actively and purposefully expose yourself to those things that are abject, to those things that put you at risk as part of your sacrifice, as part of your spiritual development and your relationship to God, that you, you put yourself at risk in order to do this work, in order to save souls. And it's that linking up of saving souls with washing your hands and changing your bathing practices that, is really powerful. So the colonial government does a bit less of it because they're the the missions are doing a lot of that work because it, there is a moral element to it that's really important. But they do lots of weird stuff. So they'll like, and it, I mean, it meets its its kind of logical end point in in you know the horrors of the twentieth century, the kind of the genocides associated with fascism are the kind of the end point of this kind of thinking which is horrific yeah so so the association between another an othered human body and the pathogen yeah means that extermination of one leads to an extermination of the other yeah right so when the pathogen becomes the jew then exterminating the jew becomes 
killing the pathogen and 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 that becomes therefore a quote unquote hygienic thing to do yeah. because you are cleansing the population um and i guess one of the interesting if deeply disturbing aspects of this coronavirus debate is how it maps onto you know we've mentioned SARS and, and swine flu bef- before but how certain pathogens get to define certain parts of the world yep. you know you can think of you've mentioned aids before aids is, is one ebola, ebola. zika mm-hmm. uh, and the the periodic waves in which moral panic starts to at, starts to occur based on this widespread inf- in, infection all coming up to that central fear of what happens when the peop- the pathogens and therefore the people of of one part of an of of the world of of an other part of the world is able to take over and destroy our way of life and the the way in which the technologies that we have developed to to control the pathogen inf- invasion map on to the way in which we've evolved technologies to control the human invasion are, are are very similar so you know the 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 similarities between the quarantine and the the detention camp as a space in which you physically separate out the the other human whether they are that because they may or may not be carrying a pathogen or or they are that because they have a different color skin or they have they have a different religion. Yeah, well they're modeled on the same right Foucault tells us this. They're modeled on the same impulse to divide up space in order to discipline, right? The, the, the hospital is no different from the prison, which is essentially the the detention camp versus the quarantine. I mean they're ultimately they're designed to do the same thing and when your focus is on people of color in countries that are run by you know, white dominator culture, it's kind of bell, bell hooks uses that phrase a lot. You have a scientific rationale for racial control. And, and what's, what's particularly interesting to me is how certain spaces which have transient populations where people mix people from different backgrounds and different geographical origin points mix get marked as particular sites of fear you know one of the one of the key images of the coronavirus story are the cruise ships yeah uh cruise and you know privileged spaces yep. in in many ways but cruise ships going from port to port to port trying to find someone to to allow them in is eerily and disturbingly disgustingly familiar in terms of stories of jewish refugees going mm-hmm. you know on on a ship from port to port to port in, in in during the holocaust and no one allows them in yep um you ha- similar similar fears to do with airport spaces similar fears to do with student residences at universities yeah where you have this this big group of people from all sorts of different parts of the world who are coming together and sharing their lives sharing their cultures sharing their food and perhaps sharing their pathogens. Yep. Uh one thing I wanted to ask you was we've been we've been talking a lot about Europe and Europe's relationship to 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 China. I wondered if you had anything to say about uh, a a more specifically Pacific connection to the Bay Area. 
Yeah. And, you know, I don't know much about it, but it it is it is a part of the America that part of of what is the United States today that has today and has has for a long time had significant populations of Chinese origin. Yeah. How, how do these how does coronavirus map onto anxieties in the bay area of, and and the west coast specifically? Yeah, well so the the west coast interest I mean it's really interesting as well because we have if we could do a whole podcast episode about this. We also have a, a really important history around the AIDS crisis, um, w- which is similar. Um, there's there's huge and very kind of mixed and diverse Asian cultures in California. And it's not just, we, we obviously have a large Chinese population, but we also have a significant Hmong population. We have Vietnamese populations. We have Malaysian populations. We have Thai populations. Of course, there's a, a very important Japanese and Korean communities. So the, the there is a Pacific world that California and the Pacific Northwest are a part of, very much a part of. Mexico is part of that as well. So there's lots of communities where, there was a lot of intermarriage, but it was secret intermarriage. So a lot of Asian communities, when the United States enacted its its anti-Asian policies, because the United States in the the late 19th century um, enacted really strict immigration controls specifically from people from Asia. So a lot of communities started to experience really, really strong racial discrimination at that time. So there was a lot of intermarriage between Mexican and Mexican-American and Asian families to to try and kind of racially assimilate in order to protect themselves. Really interesting history. There is still the same fear. Uh, when swine flu happened, <laughs> when swine flu happened, I was teaching. I was teaching kids in San Francisco. Um, and the it was all in the news and everyone was getting it. And a couple of people that I worked with had it. Like it went around and no one, everyone was fine. Like it was just a summer flu. Um, but the sa- it's, it is the same rhetoric. It's absolutely the same rhetoric. Um, what I find really interesting about the Bay Area in particular is people are afraid of coronavirus, but they're not afraid of measles. Even though we've had a really serious set of measles outbreaks recently. And it's not just measles, it's whooping cough and it's mumps. And there's a kind of prediction that polio might might make a comeback as well in the style of George W. Bush. And the people, it's really, I find this incredible that there's the same kind of fear, even though there's less fear of food, I think. There's still a kind of white anxiety around food. But I think enough people who live, certainly live in the Bay Area, and if you grow up there, you, you know, you have friends from everywhere. California doesn't have a, a racial or ethnic majority anymore. You're you're less freaked out by the kind of the white fear of food, for example, which, you know, is like the bare minimum that you can ask. But there is still a fear of the virus. But you can't be, I guess in terms of reality, you can't be afraid of every, as a white person, you can't be afraid of every Asian person you see because too many of them. there's too many, right? There's, <laughs> And you know so many of them because you, ha- you even if you're super racist and you wish you didn't, you you have to work with more diverse groups of people just because of the nature of the place. So you're 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 less likely to be afraid of the 
the one Asian person who you think might be Chinese on the street because unlike in Edinburgh, (laughs) you can't quarantine yourself from the diversity of the population, but there is still a real fear of the, of the pathogen. I cannot grasp. I can't grasp how that kind of racism exists alongside an entire community of people who don't vaccinate their kids. I just, so yeah, cause my mom has an autoimmune disease, right? And I was like, you know, wash your hands, be careful. She's like, I don't go outside anyway, but we're not as afraid of coronavirus as we are of measles. We are terrified of measles. When you say we, you mean you and your mom? And my family, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. My family and, yes. and the people who kind of know about what it means to have an autoimmune disease. The, I went to school at a, sc- a, a school that had like a 10% vaccination rate. The majority of kids... What, this was when you vaccinated. were at school? Yeah. So, I mean, is the yeah. anti-vaccination movement much older in the Bay Area? Than, in Wakefield. Than, yes. Yeah, so a bit. Yeah. A bit, but it wasn't It wasn't tied to autism. Yeah. It was tied to a fear of drugs mm-hmm. or kind of like, we don't need pharmaceutical companies. There was, there's still a lot of conspiracy theory. But, the, but Wakefield was, I mean, he did a real number on... On the Bay Area. But most kids aren't, are, you know, in, in Marin County aren't vaccinated. It's the weirdest thing. It's really bizarre. Um, I have, you know, recently revaccinated myself for certain things because, because I don't have immunity at home anymore. So, um, but it, that's where it's really bizarre to me where the the science isn't part of it. They say it's science. There's no, no. science involved. And, and, it suggests at the very least, at least we could speculate, that it suggests that the real fear isn't of the pathogen, the real fear is of the racial other. Yeah. Right? That that that's and and the it's not that the fear of the racial other gets exacerbated by a more by a deeper underlying fear of the pathogen, it's the other way around. Yeah. The fear of the pathogen gets reinforced by a deeper, more underlying fear of the racialized other. Yeah, exactly. Um, and with measles, there isn't that opportunity because it's it it as a as a as an epidemic, it is less easily uh, prone to racializing. Yeah. Um. In in the way that coronavirus or or AIDS or SARS or or, or whatever is, and therefore. It is more familiar and less threatening. Yeah. Good. Less threatening. <laughs> um, I think that's probably a good note to end on. Um, we will be disappearing for a few weeks because we are on strike. Yes. Or we will be. Um, we will upload short episodes to remind you that we are on strike. Yeah. And uh, how you might get involved if you if you should wish to. And uh, other than that, uh, look after yourselves, everybody. If you if you think you are ill and you think you might have the flu, then go you know, to the doctor. Wash your hands. Yes, don't 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 go out unless you have to. Yep. Uh, be be kind and considerate to others. And um, yeah. Look after yourselves and let us know what you think. Let us know how, if coronavirus is affecting you in any way. Um, Good. Other than that, we'll see you in a few weeks' time. Bye. Bye.
We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Vichaudhvi. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our show is on Facebook at State of the Theory Podcast and on Twitter at Theory Doctors. Our music is provided by the Agrarians and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Thank you.